What is the first thing that comes to mind when I bring up copyright law? Books. Probably lawsuits. Uh, plagiarism. Patent. Is there copyrights on my tweets? Why does it exist? That the copyright laws are there so that the artist gets all credit for their work. For example, you're not supposed to use certain songs because you'll get in trouble for it, but the people still do it. So don't download this song. When you open up a book and you look to see what year it was, was written. The C logo. Yeah, that's a copyright. Using other people's materials without their permission. I think it's a broken system that has been started to, instead of protecting the pieces, it's protecting corporations. That's what I think of when I think of copyright. Welcome to The Extra Dimension. This episode is on the topic of copyright law featuring Brian Mitchell and Ian R. Buck. Find the show notes for this episode of The Extra Dimension at thenexus.tv slash TED20. All right, so as we heard just a moment ago in that intro, uh, there are a lot of different understandings of copyright law, uh, some misconceptions, different opinions even on what it should be and, and you know what it currently is. Um, so this episode hopefully will be uh, a nice primer into the subject um, for, for just about anybody, um, whether you, uh, you know, have, have had some experience with copyright law before um, or if you don't understand what it is at all. Um, so, shall we get right into it, Brian? We shall. All right. Um, so, copyright, right off the bat, is a type of intellectual property, um, which means intellectual property is basically like anything that applies to stuff that we make with our minds. It's more, so, you know, creative works. Um, it, ideas. Yeah, ideas um, inventions. Yeah. Brands. So, you know, notable things, songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anything you make with your mind, that's it. That's a good way to put it. Um, and so, yeah, we, we separate intellectual property into a few different categories, um, and copyright is one of those categories. Um, so copyright specifically covers all of those creative works. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's separate from, like, patents, which are for inventions and designs, um, and it's separate from trademark, which is for branding. And copyright... Because it's for creative works, um, it actually works a little bit differently than like patents do. Because, for example, patents, um, you have to go and apply for a patent, right? Um, and, and have it filed at like a government office in order for you to hold a patent. And in every government that you um, wish for it to be patented under. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if you want it to be patented both here and like in the European Union, yeah, you got to go to both of them. Um, whereas with, with copyright, uh, as soon as you create something, you automatically have the copyright for that work, as long as it's something that you came up with on your own. Yeah, it is, it's assumed that you own your own creative work. Mm-hmm. Um, now, copyright has not that long of a history, actually, when it comes to, like, big philosophical ideas. Uh, so in, in 1709, Britain 
was the first time that we had any legislation that that covered like creative works um and this was the statute statute of Anne, and it was created in response to this uh growing tendency of people who owned printing presses to just like take existing books and make copies of them and just sell them without the author's permission because who was going to stop them right that sounds like a huge wild west because i mean printing presses were the first time that you could really mass produce something and so mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. you know it would take a lot for someone to write it out so you can't have the much as much scale so i guess the ability to copy things is what kind of spawned it hence the name copy right yep and it, we're, we recently went through kind of a similar transition uh and we'll we'll get into a lot of that but with the the digital age now um it's much much easier to make copies even than it was before with printing presses um so we're like copyright law is kind of going through a shift as we speak um, for for like to to mold with the new technologies that have made new things possible. Um, so after yeah, after Britain came up with their um, copyright law, many other countries started to put their own copyright laws in place. Um, but for the most part, they didn't recognize copyrights from other countries. So back then, it was kind of similar to how patents are, right? Um, where you you couldn't really assume that your copyright would be honored in other countries. Um, however, uh, over the course of the years, we have had a lot of international agreements regarding copyright um, have been signed, and that started with the Berne Convention in 1886. Um, and that's actually the one that still kind of forms the basis of most of our copyright law today. Um, and by now, it's pretty much universal. So as soon as you have a copyright in any country, it's going to be it's going to apply in almost every country in the world, which is pretty crazy because I can't think of any other pieces of law that that have that such far reaching implications. Yeah, like the you know human rights and things are kind of you know we we see them as assumed, but it's you have to be part of the United Nations to really see that and in a legal mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess the two things that are the most important to uh, human society that we all agree on are human rights and uh, whether or not musicians should be compensated for their work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, man. Priorities, right? Yes. Um, now, copyright um, also differs from like patents and things in kind of one other big area, and that's how long it lasts. So... Um, for like for patents, they usually only last for about twenty years um, after they're filed. For copyrights, most in most countries they last for the life of the author, and then fifty to a hundred years after that, um, which is a, a really fascinating clause um, and probably one <laughs> Disney. Of the, yeah, the, one of the most controversial ones, definitely when it comes to copyright. Um, and I, you can under I can understand like kind of the the basis of that reasoning right that um if if an author has like written a book um and they've got a family right and then the author dies they want their family to still be able to get the benefits economically of their work right um because if you've got you know some some business person who dies they you know their their family inherits all of the business that they owned right um so it kind of makes sense for for copyright to work sort of the same way for a little while um, and i think didn't it at least in the u.s it started out being life plus seven years and they doubled that to 14 and they went to like 
20 and yeah yeah and so and it it's... kind of kept getting longer as a lot of these early copyrights were about to expire they'd say oh, let's make it a little longer let's make it mm-hmm. a little longer mm-hmm. so you kind of got to wonder like um <laughs> how much influence those companies had who who owned the copyrights for those things uh on the, on the law being extended i think quite a lot i mean i think you know when i hear about public domain i think very legal you know legally things that are put out explicitly in the public domain or you know books from the 1800s because right. there's not a lot there there are some but there isn't a huge amount of things that are you know fairly modern that are in the public domain a lot of them are you know i think the happy birthday song the the lyrics have one copyright the tune has another and one of them entered public domain pretty recently but the other one didn't Right. And so some yeah. company has been charging royalties to use for all this time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so so we'll get into exactly what like royalties are and what different usage cases apply to things. Um, should be should be a good time. <laughs> um, so we mentioned that, um, yeah, a lot of times it's like corporations that end up owning the copyrights for things, um, which was which is not like the assumed default. Um, so as soon as you make something right. Uh, you, the individual author, own the copyright for that work. Um, the exception being if this is work for hire. So, um, you know, Brian, any any like code that you write for for work that belongs to the company that you work for, right? Um, which makes perfect sense because like if if I you know if I'm an individual who's working on a project like you know maybe I'm making a podcast for instance um maybe I don't have the expertise to do all of the individual parts so I'm going to hire out somebody else to make like the uh album art for example um but it but because the sole purpose of that album art is for my show then you know it it makes perfect sense for me to be the copyright holder for that thing um still going towards the original creator of it all yeah the organizer um but of course individual people are not the only ones who hire other people to do things uh in this day and age (laughs) it's almost always companies who are hiring other people right yep and as we all know corporations are people too (laughs) thank you citizens united Uh, yes Uh, all right, so let's talk about some examples of the types of works that copyright usually covers. Because um, we, we mentioned that it's artistic works, um, but that's kind of a nebulous a nebulous term, right? Um, and so this, this list has actually kind of expanded as time goes on and as m- new types of works uh, enter, enter the world. Um, so obviously they started off with like books, right? Um, so literary written works uh, are covered. Um, things like lectures, addresses, sermons, um, motion pictures. Uh, I don't think that those existed back in 1709. <laughs> I, I don't think so either. Other things like um, choreography, um, musical compositions, sound recordings, paintings, drawings, sculptures, photographs, software, more like the kind of the complete the work of the software, not necessarily the code or the branding around it. Broadcasts graphic designs and industrial designs translations and adapt and, and adaptations are um this is quoted from the the article um protected as original works without prejudice to the copyright of the original work and collections of artist works are protected without prejudice to the original works 
Um, so yeah, that phrase is actually a really important thing to note because, um, so let's take the example of like, uh, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez writes a great novel in Spanish, right? And so then they want to translate it into English so that English readers can experience it. Um, obviously, Gabriel Garcia Marquez still owns the copyright for the original version, um, but then somebody else had to translate it, right? And the translation uh, has its own copyright, but it also still depends on the original work's copyright. Um, so nobody can publish a tr an English translation of 100 Years of Solitude without both the person, the permission of the person who owns the copyright for the translation and the permission of the person who owns the copyright of the original Spanish version. Yeah, and I think that kind of comes out because while the original content is the same, the a translation can really have a difference on how someone interprets the story. Definitely, between languages definitely. and things. So it's important to to show that while this isn't an original original creation, there's a lot of work and effort and I guess original adaptation that goes into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, I was I was very interested to learn that like collections are covered under copyright so this is like you, an anthology or mm -hmm. a best hits cd or something yep and and even like uh i believe that this expands all the way to things like if i just make a playlist right and i i own the copyright for that particular order of the songs um or like you know a mixtape if we were back in the 90s <laughs> um but but i can't just like give that playlist with the content of the songs to somebody else without the permission of the copyright holders of all of those songs. Um, so I could tell, I could tell you, Brian, you know, like you should listen to songs A, B, and C in that order. Um, and then in theory, I guess you can't tell anybody else that because I still own the copyright for that, for telling you that it goes in that order. Um, yeah, that gets a little bit complicated. So it's up to you how you enforce it, how much you kind of publish it and release exactly. it. Exactly. Yep, yep. Um, and actually, we should probably note now that um, that list of, like, copyrightable works um, came from a document um, that I've been reading by the World Intellectual Property Organization, um, a branch of the UN who, like, helps, like, develop all of these treaties and everything between lots of different countries. Um and uh, the really cool thing is that they released it under a Creative Commons license, and we'll be getting into Creative Commons later. Um, but yeah, if you're interested in reading that full document, uh, the link is in the show notes. Um, so, in addition to these kind of copyright works, we should note that copyright does not cover ideas and information, only mm -hmm. the ways they are expressed or recorded. So it's kind of how you um, capture um, raw thoughts and things that come out of your, your mind. Yep. Yep. So like, um, if you think about choreography, right, if I'm just dancing a particular set of moves that I have choreographed, it doesn't really mean anything until I have written down or recorded it in video or something like that. You have to, you have to have it kind of, do you know, documented in a, a physical or digital way Yep. in order yep. to kind of prove that this is in fact what you came up with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also interesting to note that copyright applies to original works, but it does not guarantee that they're unique. So if two different authors independently create very, very similar works, they both still own the copyright for their own version of it. Um, 
which is which ma- probably makes it a little bit harder to enforce. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Um, I think in a digital age, it can kind of be see- you can kind of see how or when someone releases something. But I think, or I can imagine, there are probably many cases where this is a difficult area. Right. And and for things like, you know, like a podcast, for example, it's rather easy to distinguish like my voice from somebody else's voice unless it's my dad. Uh, but uh, but, you know, things like Foley artistry. Right. Um, it's pretty hard to demonstrate who it was who was making those sounds. Um, so enforcing a copyright in that area would be almost impossible, I think. Yeah. Um, now, copyright covers two different categories of rights and this is something that i did not know until i was doing the research for this episode um so the first is probably the one that we think of most often that's the economic rights um so as a copyright holder you have the right to derive financial reward from those from the use of your work by other people um and the economic rights are usually transferable to other people um so yeah i could i could sell the copyright for my work to another entity and then um, they have complete control over it however the other category is moral rights Um, and the moral rights refer to things um, like preserving and protecting the author's link with their work um, and also like preserving the the authenticity of of the work itself right so attributions uh you know would would preserve um the moral right of the author, um, and also like not misquoting things <laughs> would would preserve that. Mm-hmm. Um, and moral rights are not usually transferable to other people. Um, so I, I can't, well, yeah. Uh, and so you get into like weird things like ghostwriting, right? Where, where one author is writing something, but th- another author is telling the world that, that they're the one who wrote it instead of the actual author. Um, so I guess that would be a breach of moral rights. Um, and in some countries, moral rights last forever. So like, no matter how long ago something was written, um, you know, we still have to attribute it to the original author. So I haven't seen, I I didn't know about the difference between economic and moral rights. I think it's ghostwriting you bring up is kind of an interesting idea. I think many, you know, songs that are big pop songs, they're not written by the, the single artist. They're written by a bunch of different people and whether or not they're given attribution. I think, you know, in a CD, you might have this song was produced with, written with, yada, yada. But mm-hmm. on, you know, Spotify, you don't see that. And so there's, where's where's the, the line of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can usually find it if you go to, like, the Wikipedia article for a particular song. But yeah. um, <laughs> but not everybody goes and reads that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like, I, do we have metadata slots for all of those things? I don't know. <laughs> Um, now there are of course, uh, even further breakdowns that we can go into those two areas. Um, so there are different types of economic rights. Um, first there's, uh, the reproduction, distribution, rental, and importation rights. Um, so distribution is kind of a situation that is changing in the digital age, um, because, um, previously, as soon as an author would sold a copy of their work, then they no longer had the right to like dictate what happens with that individual copy, right? So as soon as I go and buy a copy of a book from the bookstore, I can just give it away to somebody else if I'm done reading it, um, and the author can't stop me from doing that. Um, but 
in a digital world, right? It's when we're working with machines whose like sole purpose is to just make copies upon copies upon copies, right? If I send a file from my computer to yours, chances are the copy on my computer and the copy on your computer are not actually the only copies that were made, right? Because it had to bounce around between uh, probably at least one or two servers on its way to you, right? Um, so each of them has made a copy and who knows if they're, they're like keeping a copy and it gets really complicated really fast. It depends what services we're using. If it's direct or direct, nothing sees just a stream right. of, of packets. However, you know, you could send me something that you created that you have copyright on, and I take it and say, "I'm going to fill up my computer, and I make several several million copies of that." Did I just do I not have to pay you for seven several million copies of that, or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or um, of the one? And um, I know with, with games as well. With in the you know, you buy a game on Steam, you can't get rid of it you have to always um have access to some online server to make sure that you can use it so drm really comes uh digital rights management comes into play here i think we will we talk about that later uh not extensively but yeah digital rights management is is one way of trying to control the uh the the copyrighted materials um without like having to go to court basically is kind of the <laughs> the bottom line there right yeah and then that's that's a whole other topic that we can discuss in a f- future episode mhm definitely um now public performances uh broadcasting and communication rights uh are another section of the economic rights um so basically like if I wrote a play, um, I get to decide who can perform it live. Um, and, uh, oh yeah. Um, and also like, uh, playing a recording of something, uh, for a large group of people, um, or broadcasting it, you know, to the public, um, that kind of thing. That is also the right of the author, um, to control. So I know at the university of Minnesota Morris, where we went to school, mm-hmm. um, I, I was in the tech crew there and we had, movie nights that was paid for by the student activities office and things and but they would pay you know five six hundred dollars per movie to show it because they have to pay extra to show it in a public space and so this is that's another way that copyright holders can kind of leverage those those rights make people charge more because more people are going to be viewing it so they can they can charge more and make more off of it mm-hmm mm-hmm um, and then, of course, uh, authors have the economic rights to translation and adaptation. So they get to choose uh, when and where um, different versions of their work is going are going to be produced and sold. Um, and one of the one of the questions now in a digital age is that how how does this relate to user generated content? Right. Um, because you see as soon as as soon as a TV show goes up. Right. Uh, or an episode of a TV show, um, there's immediately like GIF compilations of it with, uh, you know, maybe maybe the same lines from from the episode uh, overlaid on it. But sometimes people, you know, put other like reaction things uh, onto them. So they're, they, they are, you know, creating new stuff with it. Um, but like the, the question is, to, to what extent uh, do they are they allowed to do that before it becomes an infringement of the original copyright? And a lot of time that falls under fair use where you can use something if you're kind of remixing it and making your own thing basing off the original one. And that's where the idea of public domain really comes into play because something's been out for a long enough time that the original copywriter or the original creator has had enough time to to make what they can off of it. 
and now it's in the domain of the public to further adapt and and base new new things off of that yep yep um uh, although you can probably assume that a tv show that is uh an episode that is currently airing uh and there are already like gif sets of it online that's not in public uh, domain quite yet <laughs> no not quite but and i think a lot of the times the copyright holders can choose to enforce or not enforce different things yep yep definitely um, and I believe so. So one of the quirks of trademark law, which again is separate from copyright law, is that in order for a trademark to still be valid, the holder of the trademark has to demonstrate that they have done everything that they can to defend that trademark. Right. Um, and I'm pretty sure that that does not apply to copyright. Um, you can choose whether to enforce copyright selectively in different cases. Yeah, well, and, and with copyright, you can say, yeah, I give you permission, and then it's done. Yep, you know, it can, yep, yep, It yep. can be verbal. It's Since it's not a legally, you don't have to submit something to have a, a copyright, it's it's a little less formal. Mm-hmm, yep. Um, so, let, yeah, let's talk about transferring copyright, because there's several different methods of doing that. Um, so, first is assignment, which is a direct transfer of copyright, so... Uh, the original right holder gives up their copyright in order to give it to somebody else. Um, licensing is the form of transfer that is most often seen. Um, so the copyright holder retains the copyright but allows a third party to use the work in certain ways. Um, so, you know, whenever you hear like a pop song at a sports event, right, they have licensed the use of that song at that sports event. Um, but that doesn't mean that the person who owns the, the arena can go and use that song again in a different context, right? Um, because, yeah. because licenses usually um, have a very specific use that they allow and a specific like time frame that they allow it to be used in. And I think with with music, a lot of the time, huge events is, are they're going to pay a license because mm-hmm. the the record labels or artists are going to are going to know about that event and say, okay, hold on, am I am I getting any license fees for this? Whereas smaller smaller things like you know I'll use Morris again as an example, you know, house music before some show or during the dance show, there's there's no license fees paid there other than the individuals purchasing those songs in the first place. Right. Yep. Yep. And so it's it's kind of how much the the people want to enforce it. I remember listening to one of like the student run radio shows on uh, KUMM and calling in and like and requesting a, a song and uh, and you know they were about to play it and they're like oh hold on we got to wait for the Spotify ad to finish before <laughs> before we <laughs> unmute it <laughs> and I was like are you guys for real this is how you're doing it. <laughs> I think there's a there is a law about radio. So if you play a song that was in the top forty any time the last ten years, you can't play it on the radio without licensing it. Huh. Huh. I remember hearing something about that for at least the the Morris student radio. Mm-hmm. But, Interesting. Uh, Minnesota, U.S. I'm not sure where the limits are on that. Um. Next up is royalties. So this is a type of licensing um, where the copyright holder gets paid based on how many times the work is used. Um, So actually, I think licensing it for a specific sporting event would be an example of royalties. Um, But also, like, in general, if... um, 
if a musician like signs on with a label, usually one of the clauses in their contract will be that they don't just get paid like a, a lump sum right away. They also get paid for, um, you know, how many different places license the use of that song from the from the label. So things like Spotify, they're going to they're going to pay the the record label charges a fee of who knows how much it is like 0.5% of a cent on every stream of a specific song. Mm-hmm. And so Spotify needs to be able to pay those royalties. So they're going to pay play ads the listeners so they can pay the record labels who then take a chunk and then in turn pay the artists. And one thing that I've always been kind of curious about in in an age where we've got all of these companies that run streaming services and everything is like who audits that? You know, like who, uh, what guarantees that Spotify is telling the labels the actual numbers? Um, because I believe that we, we recently had kind of a snafu where Facebook uh, revealed that they had been over-reporting um, advertising numbers on their site. And, and so they had yeah. been overcharging advertising firms. Um, and so it's like, well, wh- like how, how would anybody have found out if Facebook had not come clean about that? I think that, you know, we don't, we can't see the contracts they have, but they might have mandatory audits that the third party comes in to verify a lot of these numbers. I, there, there are ways that they can, you know, they'll only do business if we can verify things. So. Right. Yeah. 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 Yep. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm sure that the technical details of that would definitely go over my head on, on how exactly they can be sure that the numbers are, are accurate. Um, and then lastly is uh, collective administration of rights. So this would be a, an exclusive license granted to an entity that will act on the author's behalf to handle a bunch of things, including distribution, granting usage permissions, and detecting and preventing infringing of rights. Um, so this is this is honestly like the biggest job that companies like music labels have is um not only like like finding artists that they think are are worth supporting right um so curating kind of curating the industry that way but also like doing a a bunch of administrative tasks so that the musicians don't have to do it themselves yeah so that you know a record label brings things like automatic distribution but also the ability for an artist to not have to manually go around enforcing their own copyrights. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And actually we we're we're running into some interesting situations where like, for example, YouTube as a platform kind of serves a lot of different purposes to the people who are uploading stuff to them, including like copyright enforcement. So if somebody else uploads a video that is similar enough to one that I have already uploaded, then YouTube will probably flag that. Um, and, and then I, you know, get to choose how to deal with the situation. Unless you say no copyright in- infringement intended. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. No. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> Um, so yeah, let's talk about some consequences if you uh, if you infringe upon my copyrights. Oh, you terrible yes. person! So this this does depend on the region. So there are, there are local laws or n- national laws of whatever wherever area you are. Um, we we the, chop off the right hand, right? Yep, totally. And then any further infringement, it's another finger or toe. <laughs> um, no, so for real, uh, 
copyright holders may be compensated for like um, either the amount of profit that the infringer made um, by infringing or for the estimated amount of money that the copyright holder um, did not receive as a result of the infringement. Um, so I guess whichever one of those the judge goes with is kind of up to the judge. Yeah, and a lot of DVDs and things would have a warning saying if there's copyright infringement, you'll be charged with up to $250,000. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that is very dependent on the on the case. And that's not enforced super strongly, I think, especially DVD ripping. That's another That's another story. Yeah. Um, we also will likely see the infringing goods uh, being destroyed. I, I think that, that would be kind of a first step, right? Um, and also any tools or materials used to produce the infringing goods uh, might be destroyed. Um, and in very, very serious cases like um, piracy on a commercial scale, criminal sanctions could be t- brought to uh, against the infringer. Um, so this could take like the form of a fine or a prison sentence. And that it has happened with many large-scale peer-to-peer network um, uh, listing sites and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm pretty sure that, yeah, um, a few like individual users of those peer-to-peer sites back in the early days. Um, yeah, every couple of years I'll hear about someone who has fined several tens of thousands of dollars for infringing on... Oh, I think even $10,000 for like an album of 12 songs or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just just to kind of scare people into mm-hmm. not not um pirating it, it's, copyrighted materials. It's the uh the pirates beware and then you've got, you know, six people hanged out there in the harbor, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um now there are a few related rights to copyright. They they don't fall exactly under copyright, but they but but they have a lot of rights that are very similar um and these this would be a category of of works that um these works do have artistic value cultural value but because they are not fixed in a like permanent medium um they they can't be awarded copyright directly um so we're talking things like performers rights performance performers have the right to prevent recording broadcasting or communication to the public of their live performances um which makes perfect sense because like if i go to see hamilton uh and i just broadcast it live via my phone um then lots and lots of other people don't have to buy tickets to go and see hamilton right while something at like a music concert, many artists encourage Instagram, Snapchat, and photos, videos of the performance being put up because it's going to spread more publicity about mm-hmm. that work or that artist. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, especially since like in that case, um, they're competing the the live performance against a recording of the live performance, and obviously there are already recordings of those songs you know, available commercially. Um, and so the appeal there is not the song itself, but the experience of going and seeing the artist, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, broadcasting organizations have the right to authorize or prohibit rebroadcasting or recording of their broadcasts. Um, and the limitations and exceptions to these are pretty similar to with copyright. Um, so fair use would be um, you know, cover things like if you if you record a broadcast just for personal use, um, that would you know that would be okay. Um, but uh, but yeah, r- like recording a broadcast 
and then redistributing it, that's when we get in trouble. In general, sharing something that you haven't explicitly gotten permission for that is copyrighted work is is against the terms of use. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and so then let's let yeah let's get a little bit deeper into some of those fair use uh, cases because there's there's several different things that might fall under fair use. Um, so so fair use refers to any circumstances under which um, you can do things that normally wouldn't be allowed under copyright law. Um, and some examples would be like if you are quoting um, a short piece from a work um, and citing it as a source, that would almost certainly be uh, understood as fair use. Um, if you use a work as an illustration for educational purposes, um, educational purposes actually is, uh, we get a pretty like big fair pass, uh, <laughs> as teachers, um, because you know, it's all for the kids, right? Yeah. All for the kids. Um, and also using a work for news reporting is generally, um, considered to be all right because the, the news reporting, like the quality of the news reporting would re- be reduced substantially if they were missing, an actual work that they were talking about. It's kind of saying that if it's for the greater good of of all of humanity, you can probably use it. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good within, way of putting within it. reason. Mm-hmm. Yep. So fair use um, is the area that regional copyright laws um, vary the most on. So something that is considered fair use in one country may not be considered fair use in another one. Yep. Yep. Um, and there are a lot of different factors that are taken into account when determining the limits of fair use. Um, so, you know, if, you, if you're taken to court over something and you uh, want to make the argument that what you did was fair use, um, these are kinds of the, the some of the things that you would want to be demonstrating. Um, you would want to demonstrate that, like, the nature and purpose of the use was not nefarious. Um, whether or not you were using it for commercial purposes is definitely important. Um the the nature of the work itself, the original work, um, the amount of the work that was used in relation to the work as a whole. Um, so I think a really good example of that would be like when in in some like Nexus special episodes uh, of ours where we are covering a keynote of some sort, right? Um, and we take audio from the keynote. A lot of times that audio will have like a, a song in the background that the company who was doing that keynote licensed. Um, and there's not much that we can do about the fact that it's in there. Um, and so we can make the argument that because we were just a small part of that song made its way into our final recording, um, nobody's going to be listening to our entire podcast episode just to hear that one song, right? Um, and also it's it's kind of, I think, movie trailers and you know, discussions about movie trailers or, or, or movies using footage from trailers mm-hmm. is considered under fair use because you you aren't showing the whole thing. You're using a few clips of it. So kind of like a, a teaser. You're showing examples of the work. You're not showing the work itself. Yep. Yeah. And, and like providing analysis of a work um, is, I think, a really big category that didn't really exist a whole lot uh, until until the digital age came around and it was uh, much, much easier to make works that, you know, reviews and analysis type things that also incorporated parts of the original work into them. Um, And so that's, yeah, a lot of like automatic copyright systems um, like YouTube's flag a lot of those types of videos. uh, And then, you know, they have to like go and dispute it and it's a whole process. Um, 
And then also, finally, um, the likely effective use on the potential commercial value of the work uh, is taken into account. Um, so if, if, if I was doing something that I claimed was fair use, but it uh, created an incentive for people to not buy the original work, um, then that would, that would definitely hurt my argument that it was fair use. So I know things like song remixes are, I think I mentioned this earlier, are a big, you know, there's a big community around remixing and mm-hmm. there's entire genres I, formed around remixing, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think I consider that to fall under fair use, but a lot of the YouTube or SoundCloud algorithms are going to flag those remixes as copies of the original work, even if that may not be the case. And so it becomes difficult to to argue the use of fair use sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's even I, so up until recently, I, I always thought that like, OK, so so, um, you know, when you when you create a song, when you write a song, you own the copyright for essentially like the sheet music of it. Right. But then anybody can go and like make their own cover of that song without having to pay royalties to the original person who wrote it. Um, as long as you know, as long as it's clear who originally wrote the song. Um, but reading through, you know, these things like um, uh, copyright holders being allowed to limit, uh, you know, ad- adaptive works, right, um, and performances of their work. You know, if it was if it was like a screenplay or or a, or a um, yeah, a script or something like that. Um, that's led me to to believe that actually, I think covers and and that kind of thing of songs would would be enforceable under copyright yeah and that can be under the the potent the area of potential commercial value to the work mm-hmm. i'm i generally believe that a remix can add value to the to the original work because it spreads the knowledge of the original work's existence but that might be a much different view than if it were, if it were coming from the original creator itself. yeah and of course like different people are going to react differently to finding a remix right so like if you if you discover a remix of a thing it might pique your interest into going and looking into the original version of that song Um, whereas if i find a remix i might not even realize that it was uh you know a remix of an original song and so i i might just stick with the remix itself and never listen to the original um so it's, it's really hard to know what the yeah what the economic uh um effects are going to be of a derivative work on the original yeah there's um there's a great film called everything is a remix yes that yes um the version i find here does not look like it's the original (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's ironic where does that fall (laughs) i think there's a website everything well everything is remix.info i'm not sure dot info is the uh, most trustworthy top level domain it's the first thing that came up on duckduckgo we should, we'll just link, we'll just mention everything is a remix in the show notes and mm-hmm. you can look for it yourself. But that is a, a great way of describing how how fair use and um, public domain work can really influence new new creativity. Yep, yep. Because, yeah, it's it's so difficult to create something just completely out of the blue. You know, even like you hear interviews with uh, creators who say like, oh yeah, you know, I was just like, just sitting there thinking and then you know the the melody came to me and it's like well okay really they were um you know they've heard a lot of music all before in their life and they've so that stuff was unconsciously contributing to their thought process and everything so 
um yeah it's it, <laughs> we're we're always standing on the shoulders of of giants right yeah um, which brings us nicely, actually, to our last topic of, of the uh, episode, which is free content licenses. Um, so this is uh, the concept of like free cultural works, um, copyleft. They go by, a, there's a lot of different names for it. Um, so free cultural works are any works that are released under licenses that do not restrict others' freedom to one use the content and benefit from using it Two, study the content and apply what is learned three make and distribute copies of that content and four change and improve the content and distribute those derivative works so when i hear this i kind of think of open source because while that source might together make a a final solution that can be licensed and things they have the source of that open so people can see how a specific thing maybe was implemented how something works and they're kind of giving back to the greater good the the open world saying here's how we did it you can use this to base it off and though they might have you you have to license that code or something but they're they're putting it out there for for use for other people mm-hmm. yeah and and software is a really interesting example of of the difference between just offering something to be used for free um, and having it be like a, a proper free cultural work. Because if you don't also provide the original source code for a piece of software, then people aren't going to be able to study it um, and uh, and and apply what's learned there um, as easily, right? Um, yeah. And it's also going to be very difficult to change the the software and uh, distribute, you know, derivative works of it. Um, so, so yeah, um, the I, I've been thinking a lot about why the free content license phenomenon has come about, um, and here's kind of my conclusions on it. Um, basically. Technology has progressed to the point where we've driven down the cost of distribution for for media uh, to essentially zero. Um, and so because of that, the the number of content creators that are out there um, and the number of con- and the number of works that are available to the public has just like exploded, right? Um, everybody's a, a, a content creator these days, um, it seems like. I mean, like hundreds of hours are uploaded to YouTube every second or mm-hmm. something or Yep. Dozens, at least. And so much. All is all of it good? Mm, probably not. But that's all right, uh, <laughs> because there, because there's enough of it that it is content nonetheless. Yep, that some of it's going to be good. Um, and speaking of making it good, um, a lot of these content creators realized that their works would benefit if they could incorporate the works of others into it. Um, so, for example, I love making podcasts. I don't know squat about making music. So, if I want a nice song as the intro for my uh for my show um in a traditional model i would have to go out and first find somebody who's good at making music um and who's you know music i i like and i want to use in my thing and then i have to ask them for permission um and possibly negotiate with them on you know like licensing fees and and terms and everything um and if and if creating these podcasts is not my like full-time job, I probably don't have the time or resources to go and do something like that. 
Um, and especially, and, and also if, if, uh, if it's not my full-time job, then I'm not going to have the kind of experience, um, the kind of knowledge to know what are reasonable terms, what's a reasonable rate, right, for, for licensing this kind of thing. Um, and so because, because it would benefit uh, me to be able to use other people's works, um, the, the conclusion is that it's best if lots and lots of people share their works uh, in such a way that other people can go and use it, remix it, um, redistribute it and stuff. Um, and so so you, you get this like big, huge movement of lots and lots of artists um, who are all making stuff in their own areas and releasing them um, so that other people can go and incorporate them into their own works. Um, it, it, it altogether encourages more creativity because you have a, a base to, to jump off from. Mm-hmm. So you're not, everyone isn't doing the the same thing over and over. Yep. And so and it's not it's not a complete reversal of copyright, the concept of copyright because um usually uh even if even if the creators have given up all of the like economic rights that go along with copyright, um the moral rights still apply, right? So if if I if somebody else uses like a bunch of clips from this podcast, um they have to link back to the original work um, so that the people who, you know, listen to whatever it is, or if they like transcribe this into a written version, right. um, You know, they have to link back to the original work so that people can still find you and I. Yeah. And, and this kind of brings us to um, let's talk about creative commons. So this is kind of a, um, a, a license that is out there that you can apply to your own work. Um, so it's meant for licensing media. So um, maybe a podcast or a website, um, video, things, written video, work, yeah. Um, yeah, all sorts of stuff. Things that you can create. Um, and there are different levels that this license can can apply. So there's, um, I believe, there's even CC zero where nothing nothing is allowed. Then there's um, Creative Commons Attribution, where you can... I think um, CC0 is actually the opposite. CC0 is essentially public domain, where where everything is allowed. (laughs) Yeah, so you have CC0, where everything's allowed. Um, CC CC being Creative Commons. CC Attribution, where you are free to use and remix it, and as long as you give attribution to the original work. Um, CC Attribution Sharealike, which means you are allowed to use it and remix it but you have to share yours under a creative commons license as well i think we should look these up um yeah so so there's there's kind of three different like features that that somebody can um choose whether they want to apply it or not to their license um and so then so then you get like i think six different possible possible configurations of it um so yeah so you get to choose whether or not you want to allow derivative works. Um, if you are allowing derivative works, you can choose uh, whether or not they, the derivative work has to use the same license as the original. Um, and then you can choose whether or not to allow commercial reuse of your work. Yep. Yep. Um, and so if you if you look around, the um, a lot of things at the bottom will have cc-by-sa-nc-nd these are all shorthands for creative commons attribution share like non-commercial and no derivatives yep yep um and 
fun fact let's see what are we in the extra dimension uh this show is released under a creative commons attribution license so you can go and reuse it however you want you can even like just take this exact sound file host it on your own thing and run ads against it and make money off of it as long as you are clearly linking back to our original web page you wouldn't even have to tell us you're doing it you just have to tell us you just have to tell your the people who are consuming it that you are not the original creator yep although if if you do think that we're worth like taking and doing that uh i would love to hear from you because that's very flattering hit us up <laughs> now one of the really cool things about the creative commons movement is that it has such reached such a large volume that there are entire websites whose sole purpose is to just serve as repositories for works that have been released under Creative Commons licenses or are in the public domain uh, or are otherwise available uh, for people to use and remix and redistribute. Um, so if you are creating something and you need you know, some photography, uh, you can either go on to Flickr and do a search and specify that you want Creative Commons works, uh, or you can go on to Google Images and using the search tools specify that you want stuff that is marked for reuse. Um, if you're doing music, there's a free music archive. Um, there, for all sorts of mediums, um, there are different repositories. Um, and actually, the Creative Commons uh, website has links to uh, other websites that, that host that kind of thing. Um, so it's, it's a great, great resource for people who are trying to create stuff online. One of the big questions here is that, like, if I am giving away all of my media that I'm creating for free, um, how can I make any money off of any of it? Um, and that is a question that we explored back in the Extra Dimension number eight. So if you are interested in that subject, uh, go and listen to uh, to that episode. Link in the show notes. And I think the main way to, to get that is you the work itself might be open for, for use and other people to use and consume and host themselves. But what, what you're really being able to make money on is the distribution and how you provide it to others. Mm -hmm. And also sometimes like, um, yeah, related things like um, if, if, it's a, if it's a medium where it makes sense to have like a live show, um, right? You can make your money there. You can make your money off of merchandise, um, yep. stuff like that. Yeah. Um, now there's one more kind of type of a um, free content license, and this is kind of more meant for for code. So this is things that I interact with more often. So there, there's the big, huge. There are kind of some ideologies that go into this. One is the G GPL, which is the GNU public license, and oh gosh, what is GNU? I don't know. GNU, but is, yeah, GPL stands for General Public License. Yeah, I believe it's. GNU public license, isn't it? Okay, it is the GNU general public license. This is created by the, um, or this is kind of owned by the Free Software Foundation. What this this means is the source code is online and available for all to see and to use and to inspect. But any derivative works also have to be licensed under that same license. Mm -hmm. So it it's forcing if you want to use this, you have to also release yours into the domain, and so. You have groups of software that have things implemented their way because they're released with this license. And so everything is free and open, but you can't have, if you have a, if you're running a commercial company and you want to use this, you 
would be breaking the terms of the license if you included it in your product and you did not open source the part of that product that used that code. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, essentially it's share alike. Yep. Yeah. And then you have more something like an MIT license, which is more similar to an attribution where you have to include the license of the original code and say, yes, this is originally um, developed by this person, this company, and it's kind of provided as is. So this is just an attribution license. You can use it, adapt it, just provide some attribution. Yep. And um, these both contribute to the kind of open source movement, uh, which is like a really, really cool thing because unlike other forms of media, software is a, a type of, of creation that ideally changes over time, right? Um, as as technologies progress, uh, we update software, you know, make improvements to it and everything. Um, and so when a piece of software is released open source, um, if it becomes popular enough, uh, you know, and lots and lots of people are using it um, and interacting with that code base, lots of people, you've got lots of eyes on it, right? People using it in a lot of different ways. Um, and so people can encounter problems with it. And if they have the know-how, they can go and solve those problems themselves, update the code, uh, and then contribute that code, that new code back to the project itself. Um, and so then the original version can be, uh, can incorporate that new code into itself uh, in a future update. So that, um, you know, not not just that one person who figured out how to solve a problem is benefiting, but the entire community is benefiting from it. Yeah, it really pushes back the the improvements towards the greater good of of everyone. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and and there's yeah, making money off of of uh, open source software is is typically like. Uh, typically made in the specific implementation of that software, right? So um, even though like Drupal is an open source content management system, um, you know, if I set up a website for a company using Drupal, that company will, you know, likely be paying me, um, even though the software itself was originally free. Um, goodness, yes. Uh, so copyright, I'm amazed that we got through all of what we wanted to get through with on copyright in uh such a snappy manner (laughs) um but there you go um that that is your uh hopefully about an hour uh primer on on copyright law and how it applies not just to consumers right not just how you have to be afraid of the big bad record labels coming after you for file sharing your music um but also how how it applies to people who are um trying to create things in this new uh wild west digital age that we live in yeah hopefully it's useful and we can discuss further things such as drm and other uses in uh, later episodes definitely definitely um all right so if you wish to contact us uh, about any of the stuff that we mentioned if we made some mistakes or if you have further questions um feel free to hit us up we are the nexus um you can find us on twitter at the nexus tv or uh, send us an email at the nexus tv at gmail.com um, I have been Ian R. Buck. You can find me on Twitter at Ian R. Buck or uh, ianrbuck.com will provide you with links to other stuff that I make. And I am Brian Mitchell. You can find me on my website at brianm.me or on my Twitter at brianmitchl. <laughs> the letter L. 
As we noted earlier in the episode, most of the information came from a document from the World Intellectual Property Organization uh, and also from several Wikipedia articles. Our theme music was by Kevin McLeod. Links to all of those things in the show notes, thenexus.tv slash TED20. And many, many thanks to my friends, family, co-workers, and students who put up with me sticking a microphone in their face and asking them questions about copyright law. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good one.